Thank you. Good morning. <laughs> this is very uncomfortable for me, so <laughs> bear with me. I'll just get my PowerPoint working. Is it all right if we grab the slides? Awesome. Just the first one, please. All right. Well, I'll get started. Good morning. I'm Jordan, and my husband, Elliot, and I, we take worship here at Cornerstone. And every year we have our ministry review meetings where we go over our highlights and our lowlights of the year, and we go over our goals going into the new year. And one of our ongoing goals has been to grow congregational response during worship and to really change worship from something that we just do on a Sunday to something that we're really engaging with and participating in and experiencing. And so I thought, well, what better topic to talk about today than an aspect of worship that I feel is going to be really important in our church and in our church culture? And that is worship and warfare, finding victory through praise and worship. So just a little bit of background context. Um, Elliot and I, we took over about a little under five years ago now for worship. And I think Elliot knew more what he was getting into than I did. He'd grown up as a young teenager in worship teams. Um, my only experience of regularly singing to people was in the pub scene where people were dwelling in a very different kind of spirit. And so, and I really had no idea what I was getting into. I'd grown up in churches, so I, I like knew the function of worship. I turned up to church. I felt quite self-conscious during worship, but it was something for me to always get through until we got to the real reason I was there, which was for the sermon. And I kind of noticed that like 45% of people were like me. They were there for the sermon. 45% of people were there for the worship. 10% of people were there for the free food at the end. But I was always there for the sermon. So we took over, and like after the honeymoon glow of it had faded, and our initial enthusiasm had faded a little bit, we were having these few months of worship, and they felt like, like a bit of a hard slog. We felt unenthusiastic and exhausted, and in turn, the congregation seemed unenthusiastic in worship. And I remember that God gave me this picture, and it was this picture of this gladiator, like battle, like army crawling in a battlefield, right, covered in blood and dirt, armor intact, and it really represented where I felt at the time. Like I knew I was supposed to be in this role. I knew I was supposed to be battling this, but it was hard work. And my mindset was like, okay, I'll keep doing this until I can no longer pull myself along. And beside this gladiator is a sword. And it's like this perfectly clean, gleaming silver sword. And I realized that the sword represented worship and that God had given us this weapon to battle with. And this totally changed my perspective, along with many other learning curves over the years, of what worship could function as and how, how we can view worship and also just the power of worship. And so... If I take it back to real basics, because we're all at different stages of understanding, I just want to look at what the purpose of worship is. And I think most of us could probably agree on some level that the purpose of worship is to provide complete and utter focus and praise to God, right? If we've got that, that's our foundation, we're solid. If that is working, worship is capable of so much, of doing so much in our lives, right? It's capable of healing of transforming, renewal. It's a place to give thanks, to meditate. And it's capable of spiritual warfare. And I have two pictures here of worship, right? I'll bring them up. The first one is, 
a little cliche. There's nothing wrong with it. It's a person worshipping to the sunset. It's lovely. And worship can totally, totally look like this, right? It can be joyful and pleasant and relaxing. But today I want to look at what it looks like when worship looks like this. When worship is messy and we're using it to battle. We're using it as a weapon in our battles. Because we're all human, okay? And none of us are perfect. We all have battles, whether it's like finance, mental health, health in general, family, addictions, jobs, you know, whatever it is, we all have a battle. And we've got this verse here, which is, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Ephesians 6.12 Personally, for me, I don't really like dwelling on the bad stuff because I feel like I'm giving it energy and attention that it doesn't deserve. But as Christians, I think we would be foolish to deny that if there is good working for us, there is bad working against us. And throughout the Bible, we see so many examples of people being attacked spiritually and physically, and we see them using worship as a means of warfare, as a means of weapon. So I've got two examples today, and I chose these stories because I like the fact that they're actual literal battles. It paints for me a real easy to kind of understand picture of worship being used in battle. And I also like them because victory in both stories seems really impossible. So the first one I have here is Joshua. So Joshua is the leader of the Israelites after the death of Moses. And this is Joshua 6, 1 to 20. This is in the walls of Jericho. Now the gates of Jericho were securely barred because of the Israelites. No one went in and no one came out. When the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king and its fighting men. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have the whole army give a shout and the wall of the city will collapse and the army will go up, everyone in. When the trumpet sounded, the army shouted and at the sound of the trumpet, when the men gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed and so everyone charged in and they took the city. Right, That's my first example, and I'm going to come back to that, but I'm going to go to another story first, which is in Chronicles 2.20, and this is, I think you say it, Jehoshaphat, I did Google the name, but it was like an Irish translation, so I was like, Jehoshaphat? So, <laughs> so I'm just going to go with Jehoshaphat, right? So he's the fourth king of Judah, and he became a really successful ruler of the country. So Jehoshaphat's afraid because he's received word that this great army is coming to battle him, he's outnumbered, he's unprepared, and he cries out to God, and God responds, and then we see Jehoshaphat and his army worshipping God, so much so that he actually sends out the worshippers before the army. And I can only imagine how that conversation went down, right? So you've got like a bunch of skinny, scrawny, maybe flamboyant singers in one corner, and then you've got your burly warriors all weaponed up in another corner. And he's like, yeah, so you guys are actually just going to sing first. I mean, their faith on all parties must have been incredible. So this is Jehoshaphat crying out to God. Our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power to face this vast army that is attacking us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Then the Spirit of the Lord came on Jehaziel. He said, Listen, King Jehoshaphat, and all who live in Judah and Jerusalem. This is what the Lord says to you. 
Do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army, for the battle is not yours but God's. You will not have to fight this battle. Take up your positions, stand firm, and see the deliverance the Lord will give you, Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Go out and face them tomorrow, and the Lord will be with you. Joseph bowed down his face to the ground, and all the people of Judah and Jerusalem fell down and worshipped before the Lord. After consulting the people, Jehoshaphat appointed men to sing to the Lord and to praise him for the splendor of his holiness. As they went at the head of the army, saying, Give thanks to the Lord for his love endures forever. As they began to sing and praise, the Lord set ambushes against the men who were invading Judah, and they were defeated. So these are just two examples of many in the Bible, right? But they demonstrate... Worship being used as a weapon. They demonstrate the power of worshipping God in the impossible, and they also demonstrate what effective worship should do. Like if we're keeping the overall purpose, right, to keep complete focus and praise on God, worship should be capable of doing this, right? Effective worship I've got should do the following kind of four things. The first thing it should do is it should change our focus, right? And both stories... People are like praising and rejoicing in their victories before they've even won the battles. Our focus should always be shifted to praise him. And when we're dwelling in our struggles, when we're worrying about the things that are not going right in our lives, we are giving them energy and attention that should be on God. God God-focused worship reminds us that it is God himself who fights for us, right? The battle is not yours, but God's. He is greater than our problems. So effective worship should recenter us back to God. The second thing it should do is it should remove our earthly lens, right? And what I mean by that is our earthly lens will look at these two stories of Joshua and Jehoshaphat and they would say, okay, it's impossible for a walled city to just crumble at the sound of a trumpet. It's impossible. You're completely outnumbered. There's no way you could win this battle. But what is totally impossible in the natural and the physical is totally possible in the spiritual, right? Because worship reminds us what God can do and that he actually doesn't have any earthly restrictions. And when we're worshiping and taking away our earthly lens, we are praising God without any of our earthly biases, our earthly desires, our earthly intentions. So now we have God at the center and we have no earthly restrictions. The third thing effective worship should do, right, is it should change our enemy's position. When we're worshiping God, we're inviting in his presence. We're inviting in all of his goody goodness that he brings, and all the bad stuff can't handle being in his presence. It has to leave. Worship is literally pulling down the glory of God, right? And when we're in his presence, that's when the enemy cannot speak to us. That's when God speaks to us. That's when he reveals his plans for us. It's when he responds to our prayers, you know. This is a a really important time to be dwelling in God's presence. So now we have God at the center, no earthly restrictions, and a weakened enemy. The fourth thing effective worship should do, right, is that it should change our circumstance. It couldn't be more apparent than in these two stories that we looked at, right? Their circumstances would change completely from what they thought the outcomes would be. But worship isn't this magic wand. I mean, we can't just wave it and expect everything to be perfect. All our troubles go away, right? 
if we want our circumstances to change, there requires some change on our part. But if we're focusing on God, if we're removing our earthly lens, you know, our earthly desires, our earthly intentions, and if we're seeking his presence, what that's really doing is actually just changing our hearts, right? And maybe the change in circumstance is actually nothing to do with the physical. It's a change of perception on our part. So when we're changing, which in turn changes our circumstances, it changes people around us. It's a ripple effect. And it may or may not be visible to us, and it may or may not be in our lifetimes, but it does change people. And I don't believe for a second that if someone knows you're a Christian, that they don't watch you a little bit closely to see how you deal with life's problems, how you deal with life's challenges, right? And so imagine the testimony you can provide if you're standing in faith and in worship and trusting God to work things out for your good. I mean, how does that look to people that are watching you? So if we're worshiping effectively... We have God at the center. We have no earthly restrictions. We have a weakened enemy. We have a changed heart that's a witness to everyone around us and changing our circumstances. If that is not a powerful weapon, then I don't know what is. So we know the purpose of worship, right? Overall praise and overall focus on God. We've seen it demonstrated in the Bible. We've seen it demonstrated in our stories. And we've seen how worship should function if it's going to be effective, right? If we're going to take it into battle. But none of this is actually very helpful to us if there's no means of practical application. If there's no way we can put it into the context of our everyday lives. And so I've got three means of practical application that I think we can use, we can do every week to really bring worship into our battles. And the first one is preparation. Now, if you're like an Olympian, right, you're not going to just rock up to the Olympic Games, look at the high jump bar and be like, yeah, I could probably do that. I mean, you would have spent years training. You would have changed your lifestyle, your diet. There's an element of huge preparation involved. And if we dial it back, right, if we have someone around for dinner, most of us would probably scrub up our houses a little, right, prepare our house. Probably check that the kids have not peed on the toilet seat. If you've got a boy, he's definitely peed on the toilet seat. We would have gone to the supermarket, bought groceries, prepared a dinner for people. Right? There's an element of preparation involved in that. So why is it that we come to church and we wouldn't prepare for worship? Right? We rely on other stewards for us. We go, the pastor's got their message, great. Worship leader knows what they're doing, great. But the thing is, we all have a responsibility for preparation. No one else can do this for us. Worship, if it's going to be transformative, if it's going to be powerful enough to battle with us, it requires our preparation. So how do we prepare? I mean, whatever works for you. Worship during the week. Pray, read the Bible, take time to reflect. Ask God to prepare us for corporate worship, to open our hearts, our ears, our eyes. One of the greatest things I've found that we can do for preparation, if you're a parent, is explain worship to your children. That was awesome, Donnie, what you said before. Our children are our best worshippers because they do it so earnestly, they have no intentions, and they're not self-conscious at all. Like if we could worship like children, that would be amazing. The second thing we can do to practically apply effective worship in our lives is participation. Now this one I do find a little hard, I won't lie, because on a Sunday morning, 
when my alarm clock goes off and Elliot and I have been up all night with the kids and like one of them is half nude on the couch upside down with a toy stuck up their nose and the other one's putting their shoes in the bathtub and we're like, get in the car, we need to go. When I get to church, I do not feel prepared or ready to participate. And sometimes I'm completely guilty of this, right? This culture of like, entertain me. I'm always like, okay, the first two songs, they'll entertain the kids and then they'll go out to preschool. Or I'm like, oh, the sounds, you know, not that good today. Sorry, Dad. (laughs) But (laughs) we come with this mentality, right, that worship should entertain us. And it's really hard to get out of that mentality. We have endless shows on our TV screens, endless activities at our doorsteps. But the thing is, worship actually isn't made to entertain us. It is made to participate in, to praise and experience God, right? Back when concerts were a thing and Corona was just a really nice beer, Dad and I, we were were going to Phil Collins. And I think it was like the week I was due with Leyland and I was like, I am going to this concert unless I'm giving birth then and there, I'm going. And so I like waddle into this concert and there's, it's amazing. The stadiums there were on the ground. It's outside, and there's like people all around us, and the atmosphere is crazy. People are dan- rock and roll dancing up the aisles. They're singing along. The participation was huge. And here we all are singing and shouting and dancing to a human man, very talented, but a human man. And we go to church on Sunday and we stoically sing our songs, you know, praise the name, what's for dinner tonight? I haven't paid that bill. You know, we all do it. But here we are coming to church for the creator of the world and we can't even gather like enough, half that amount of participation or enthusiasm that people had at that concert. And I bet myself totally included in this, if we went to our favorite band, right? we would be pretty good at participating. We would sing along, we'd know all the words, we'd have like iPhone lights waving. We'd want to be so involved in it. And I've been to a Michael Bublé concert with 20,000 people, mostly 40 plus women, and I know for a fact that you guys are the best participators if you want to be. (laughs) But my point is that we should come with a desire to participate in worship and to not be entertained. And I acknowledge this is not easy. This is challenging. I find this challenging. And for some of us, a huge step in participation might be singing the words aloud for the first time, and that is awesome. It might be raising our hand for the first time. For some of us, it might be pirouetting around the corner of the room, whatever floats your boat. Like We are here to participate and to experience worship, not to be entertained. The third means of practical application we can do, right, is expectation. Like, do we come expecting God to change us? Do we come expecting to hear from God with prepared hearts, with prepared minds? Or do we come with our own agendas and our own intentions? Do we come with the expectancy that worship is a powerful tool that God has given us? And if we're using it correctly, then it's capable of being life-changing. Like, do we expect that from worship? Because I really think we should. And so I thought, well, what better way to remember it? It's kind of cheesy, I know, but it's the COVID world, so it makes sense. Is with preparation, participation, expectation, PPE. Personal protective equipment for using worship to battle. (laughs) 
Imagine every week if we came prepared, if we came ready to participate and full of expectant hearts, right? I feel like this would totally change our culture of worship and it would totally change us as individuals. And so I know it's quick, sorry, but I'm going to do a little bit of a wrap up here. I think it's fair to say that God has given us a really powerful tool to use in worship. And the best part of it all, right, is that you can't mess it up. We can sing out of tune. We can forget the lyrics. We can sing in our car, in the shower. The best worship happens in the shower. We can sing quietly. We can sing loudly. Scream it out. No matter where you are or how you are declaring worship right, the effect is the same. Some of my best worship sessions have been like running in the dark, got a Les Mills style playlist pumping, just me and the dog, no kids, no distractions, just me and God. And sometimes I think we're so caught up in our little routines of worship and our little traditions that we've created for ourselves, we can actually forget that God has given us this perfectly prepared, powerful weapon for helping us to handle life's battles and life's hardships. And if we're worshiping God... Simply because he's worthy of praise, that's when we're gaining momentum in the battlefield, and that's when the impossible becomes the possible. That's when we see transformation in ourselves, in our circumstances, and people around us. And it is my hope for Cornerstone that we really see a movement in this area, that we really keep building on this momentum we've started. And I'd like to see, you know, what it looks like in our communities, in our church, and us as individuals if we're worshipping like this. And if we're remembering why we worship, if we're remembering the power of worship, the amazing gift that God has given us. Because I'm so longing to see what God does in us and our communities if we're worshipping this powerfully and this wholeheartedly. And I know that's quick, but I wanted to have some time to worship at the end, so I hope that's okay. <laughs> Thank you.